Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Is the Department of Justice Abusing the FACE Act to Silence Pro-Life Advocates? Please welcome John Malcolm. Vice President of the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Constitutional Government. Well, good morning and welcome to the Heritage Foundation uh, for a timely discussion on the topic of is the Department of Justice abusing the FACE Act to silence pro-life advocates? The FACE Act, which is an acronym for the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances, was passed in 1994. The act prohibits the use or threat of force uh, and physical obstruction that injures, intimidates, or interferes with a person seeking to obtain or provide an abortion. Something that many folks don't realize, though, is that the FACE Act doesn't just protect abortion clinics. It also prohibits intentional property damage of a facility providing reproductive health services, such as a pregnancy resource center, or a house of worship. With that background, let me ask you, if you could cue the first slide, who do you think is more deserving of being indicted for an alleged violation of the FACE Act? The father in this picture, second slide please, or the people who perpetrated this attack? Our panelists will tell you more about the people and events that I just showed in these photographs. You can turn that off now. The Department of Justice and the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which is part of the Department, the Department of Justice, are the most powerful law enforcement agencies in the country. They are charged with enforcing the law, federal law, in an even-handed and nonpartisan manner. But lately, many people in this country, especially conservatives, are highly skeptical that they are fulfilling their duty. Conservatives see DOJ and the FBI using a bogus dossier prepared by a political operative to pursue a years-long Russian collusion investigation. They also see, among other things, abuses of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, the raid of former President Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago, and the non-raid of Bill and Hillary Clinton's home in Chappaqua, New York, and the labeling of upset parents at school board meetings as domestic terrorists. This year alone, the Department of Justice has indicted 26 pro-life advocates under the FACE Act, 14 within the last month. Many of these pro-life advocates have been arrested in their homes in front of their families by FBI agents appearing en masse, fully armed, even though virtually none of these people had a criminal record and even though the alleged acts of which, for which they were being charged had occurred months beforehand. Virtually all of these arrests occurred after the leak of the draft majority opinion in the Dobbs case last May, and at a time when the Democrats have made abortion a major theme of the upcoming midterm elections. In the meantime, since the Dobbs leak, there have been at least 86 attacks of Catholic churches and at least 75 attacks of pregnancy resource centers and pro-life organizations. And of course, pro-abortion protesters continue to picket outside the homes of conservative Supreme Court justice, justices. What has the Justice Department done about these atrocities? 
We have an excellent panel with us today to discuss all of these events. To my far left is Andy Bath. Andy's the Executive Vice President, thank you, uh, and General Counsel of the Thomas More Society, a national public interest law firm representing individuals involved in the pro-life movement. Prior to that, Andy served as Executive Vice President and General Counsel of Boys Town. Andy has been active in the pro-life movement for over 30 years, including as Chairman of the Board of the Wisconsin Right to Life Political Action Committee. Two over from me is my colleague Hans von Spakowski. Hans is a senior legal fellow here in the Mies Center. He previously served as a federal election commissioner, but more germane to our discussion today. He also served as a career attorney and then counselor to the head of the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division during the George W. Bush administration. Between Andy and Hans is Ken Cuccinelli. Ken has a distinguished career in public service and in law enforcement. He served in the Virginia Senate and as Virginia's Attorney General. He also served as the de facto Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security and the de facto Director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services during the Trump administration. Ken is now affiliated with the Susan B. Anthony List, which seeks to reduce and ultimately end abortion in the United States. And the person to my immediate left is Julaine Appling. With a background in education, Julaine has educated the public and advocated for marriage, family, life, and religious freedom for the past 25 years as the president of Wisconsin Family Action, a state family policy council headquartered in Madison, Wisconsin. So Andy, let's start with you. The picture that I showed uh, of the man and his family, who is that person and, what, and tell us what happened to him. John, that person is Mark Houck. Mark is a delightful fellow. He's a devoted husband, father of seven. He runs a Catholic ministry that ministers to the needs of, of uh, young men. And he is aware that a huge proportion of the women who choose to have abortions do so because they're desperate. They, don't, they would prefer to keep their baby, but they've surveyed all their resources and decided that things are hopeless and they have to take this drastic measure. And so he goes to the sidewalks in front of abortion clinics and gives of himself and offers support to those women, and many of them choose life. Now, there's a pregnancy resource center right across the street from this clinic where, where this uh, um, incident occurred. And Mark goes there, and he takes the abuse that's heaped upon pro-lifers by the, by the abortion clinic escorts, gives of himself selflessly in order to help these women. Uh, he was there at the clinic. Now, the, the FACE Act that you mentioned was passed back in the 90s to counter a movement that sought to shut down abortion clinics entirely by doing sit-ins in front of the doors. And they shut the clinics down, and the, federal, the, the feds intruded on what should be a state function, a local function, and passed a law that criminalized shutting down abortion clinics by obstructing the clinic entrances or, or, or by violence. Now, Mark did nothing like that. Mark had his 12-year-old son there at the clinic who was being abused by one of the escorts, and there was an, an interaction between the two that had nothing to do with interfering with the clinic activities. Mark is innocent of these charges. He did not violate the FACE Act. This is a startling abuse of government power. So the allegation was that, that the clinic operator or person who was assisting the clinic got in the face of his 12-year-old son whom you mentioned and that, and that Mark supposedly pushed him, 
pushed him out of the way. And that I, is the, the crux of the charge. It, it's my understanding that before the federal government came in and decided to, to charge him under the FACE Act, for which he could face years in prison and, and you know, $250,000 fine per charge, uh, that this case was presented to local authorities and that there was also another uh, action initiated by the alleged victim here. What, what can you tell us about the... Uh, there was, John. This, this is just an atrocity. Uh, under the FACE Act, the first offense is a misdemeanor that carries uh, a penalty of up to a year in prison and a $10,000 fine. Now, if there's a bodily injury uh, associated, with, then that uh, those penalties are increased by a factor of 10. So uh, after the interaction between Mark and the escort, uh, the police were called, the police came to the scene, uh, found what, I, uh, what was a little scrape on the arm of this, of, of this escort and uh, decided not to take any action. Now, uh, the law provides uh, the escort with an option of initiating a criminal prosecution himself, and he did that. And that was ultimately dismissed when he continued to fail to show up for, for uh, uh, court appearances. So this should have been handled on the state and local level. It was a long time ago. Nothing came of it because nothing really happened that the law should take any notice of. And uh, and then the feds come in a year later and charge them with a felony for viol a couple felonies for violating the FACE Act. And once again, this is just a terrible abuse of government power. Uh, you know, there's a pregnancy resource center right across the street. And as, you know, the model has changed from the early 90s when the FACE Act was passed, where, where pro-life activists were doing sit-ins and shutting down clinics. Right now, uh, what they're doing is they're going to the sidewalks, offering women who are desperate and want to keep their babies the support they need to make that choice. And together, the pregnancy resource centers together with the sidewalk counselors have, have <clears throat> come together to pose an existential threat to the abortion industry, and they have to get them out of there. And one of the techniques they do, they use, is just to make them so miserable that they won't want to come back. And if they bring their children, then they prey on those children so that the parents won't want to come back. They mess with their kids. And this is what happened here. This is an injustice, John. So this is a, based on your experience with, with pro-life demonstrators, this is a, a tactic to have escorts going after the kids whom the demonstrators bring with them? Yeah, this is something we see all across the country. So, so they'll get in the face of the kids. They'll be abusive to the kids, vulgar. They'll explain the birds and the bees to the kids. Uh, the, anything to make the parents go away. Do pro-life protesters occasionally get attacked themselves? Oh, they do all the time. And, and are the police or federal authorities responsive to that as uh, a general matter? Sometimes they're terrific, John, and other times we have a great deal of difficulty getting, getting the police to charge appropriately and we have to go to court and seek protective orders or uh, even injunctions sometimes. Okay. So Julaine, uh, tell us about your work with Wisconsin Family Action and also about the events in the second series of pictures that I showed. Sure. Thank you, John. Well, uh, Wisconsin Family Council and Wisconsin Family Action are part of the state family policy network, about 38 of us all across the country. Uh, we are engaged in a public policy arena. We work with the government. We interact with the media. We work with the, the culture. We, we have a presence in churches trying to encourage people to stand up for marriage, family, life, and religious freedom. So we're not a single issue group. Um, we're not a pregnancy care center. So uh, this has been very interesting because the picture that you showed up there was my personal office in Madison, Wisconsin. 
Now, we have about 1,800 square feet in our office, and we have a lot of windows. And we're located on a main artery to the Madison Airport, actually. And um, that was an attack that was done on Mother's Day of this year, early in the morning. Um, so right after the Dobbs leak. Well, yeah, the Dobbs decision was released or leaked on Monday. And, you know, quite honestly, I knew something was going to happen because within moments of the, the news media, the media saying, hey, this has been leaked, what happened at the U.S. Supreme Court? There were people there instantly. Right. So it, we, we know it's all planned. It's all choreographed. So I figured something would happen. I was just shocked it was us. Uh, we were the first one that actually had, you know, a literal attack. This was early in the morning on Mother's Day. Someone came and put that graffiti on there, a direct threat to us, as well as threw two Molotov cocktails into my office. And it was obvious it was my office out of, the, out of our suite. And it did quite a bit of damage, but it didn't do enough. So they set a fire. Now, interestingly, the news uh, reported that as a fire broke out in our office. A fire didn't break out in our office. Spontaneous <laughs> combustion. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and, you know, did quite a bit of damage in there. If they had really been good at making Molotov cocktails, probably we would have destroyed the whole end of our building. Yeah, and of course, if, God forbid, somebody had been sleeping in the, oh, in the offices. Yeah. This, this had the potential for hurting people, seriously. I mean, we're dealing with explosives, accelerants, you know, we're gasoline and fire. So um, we, we, are, we are very blessed that we didn't have more damage. And of course, that threatening message. And, um, you know, it was all intended. It's, it's a bullying technique. It's an intimidation technique. They picked the wrong group. <laughs> it made us bolder. Right. It, it made us more committed. To, to what we believe, especially in the area of life. Now, we've long been an outspoken group in the city of Madison, working with the legislators, working with the media. Um, we're sought, at, sought after sorts. I just responded yesterday. They had an abort, a pro-abortion rally in Madison, and they called me and said, hey, what do you want to say about this? And so we're known, but I never, I never thought that we would be the target. But I will say this. If someone in Wisconsin was going to get attacked over this whole issue, I'll take that attack any day right. over a pregnancy care center. So any the, day. So I, I don't have the message up in front of me, but it essentially said something like, if, if abortion isn't safe, then you aren't right. either. Uh, and it was signed by a group that has claimed credit for it called, called Jane's Revenge. Jane, named after Jane Roe of Roe versus uh, Wade. Now, obviously, law enforcement authorities showed up on the the day this this happened, uh, have you do you have any idea what the status of the investigation is? Have you talked to the FBI or the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives? Well, this has been one of the most frustrating things that I've, I've ever experienced, to be honest. And when I hear the stories about Mark, and I hear other stories about the 84-year-old woman who was shot in the back when she was out doing some pro-life yes. work and some of these things. You know, I'm just appalled at what is happening. So I get the call, I'm in church, I'm getting ready to do a Mother's Day brunch, and I get the call early in the morning. I interact with the police as I drive to the office. When I get there, the fire department and the police meet me there, and they have an FBI agent and a member from the, of the ATF are there. They stayed, they, they closed off my office and kept me out of it while we were doing interviews all day. And um, about 4.30, they came out with three cans of physical evidence left and said, this is an active, ongoing, aggressive investigation. I've heard from FBI once, and it was at my calling them because someone was trying to say, hey, we're trying to track down a phone number, and it just sounded suspicious. So I called the FBI. 
I've heard nothing from ATF. And since, now, now mind you, this happened May 8th. Right. Uh, the last time I've had any direct interaction with a detective who was assigned to this through the Madison Police Department was early June when they requested permission to come in and cheek swab us so that we could get elimination evidence. Well, now we're talking four months later and I've not heard anything that my DNA has been you know, eliminated from the possible suspects. No one has been apprehended. No person has been taken in for questioning. In spite of the fact, we have a $5,000 reward out there. I've done an open records request with the Madison Police Department and basically what they told me, well, it's ongoing and if you want information, you should just pick up the phone and call us. I'm sorry, I'm, we're the victim. Right. <laughs> I'm just now back in my office six months later. So you made reference to the fact that you haven't really heard from anybody and no arrests have been made. I'm just curious, so there, I, I mentioned before there have been at least 161 attacks on, on churches, uh, crisis pregnancy center and pro-life organizations. Are any of you aware of any arrests that have been made in any of those attacks? Well, I'll start that answer. I try to stay in touch with some of the folks that are dealing with all this, places that have been attacked, as well as you know, people who would know. And every time I've asked, the answer is no one. Now, mind you, on August 31st, a Duraflame log was set on fire on the roof of a Planned, Parent, a Planned Parenthood facility in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Four days later, they apprehended the person who did that, as they should have. Right. And even though they knew where he bought the log. And we have, we have literal damage that has kept me out of my office for six months. And we have no one arrested and no one in, in, in whether it was um, in Buffalo, New York or Portland, uh, Oregon or in Delaware, wherever. No one's been apprehended. So you just raised a good point, actually. Uh, you said someone was arrested immediately after lighting that that door of flame lock, as they should be. So just to be clear, none of you has ever advocated violence against an abortion clinic or people who work at an abortion clinic. Is that, is that correct? Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Of course. You also made reference, just for the sake of completeness, because some of these people may not know, I think you referenced an 84-year-old woman who was shot. I, I think her name is Mary Jacobson, if I'm correct. And so this was a woman, I even forget what state, she was in. There's a referendum in her state on uh, on abortion. She showed up at at somebody's doorstep to argue. I forget whether it's a pro-life referendum, in which case would be in favor of the referendum or a pro-abortion. But she was advocating the pro-life position. And the woman who answered the door got very upset. She didn't want to have a canvasser for a pro-life organization at her doorstep. And her husband came out uh, with a firearm and and shot her. Now, fortunately, she was not badly injured, 84-year-old woman who got shot, and in <laughs> fact, didn't even realize immediately that she had been shot. She, she felt something and then turned to the husband and said, did you just shoot me? Well, yes, he had. Now, in fairness, he has been charged. Uh, so that case is proceeding, but it's like, you know, boy, I, I can just imagine how threatened they felt by an 84-year-old pro-life person showing up. At yeah, well, so now we know what it takes. <laughs> the witness who survives yeah. the attack. That's right. Yes. And you have to be an 84-year-old woman. So, Hans, let's, let's turn to you. So the FACE Act, it's not exclusively, but it's primarily enforced 
uh, by the Civil Rights Division, where you used right. to work. What are your perspectives on on enforcement of the FACE Act and on, and on the Civil Rights Division? You know, there's a truism, particularly true in Washington, that I'm sure all of you have heard that personnel is policy, and it's really true. Uh, I spent a number of years in the Civil Rights Division, and I was a career, and I was not a political appointee. And what you all need to understand about the Civil Rights Division is the structure here. This law, the FACE Act, is um, enforced by the criminal section within the Civil Rights Division. Uh, some years ago, during the Obama administration, uh, another former colleague of mine there, Christian Adams, and I did something very interesting. We uh, served a Freedom of Information Act request on the Civil Rights Division. We actually had to sue them to get them to comply with it. And what we asked for is very simple, the resumes of all the individuals hired into career positions. Now remember, those are supposed to be non-political hires. But it was very clear when we looked at the resumes that, in fact, these were political hires and that they were only hiring. If you were a conservative, you came from a conservative organization, you would not be hired. The criminal section is filled with uh, left-wing ideologues who have no interest whatsoever in enforcing the FACE Act the way it should be enforced, which is not just protecting abortion clinics, but also pro-life pregnancy centers and also churches. And you can see that in what's happened. You know, enormous number of attacks on pro-life pregnancy centers and um, uh, churches, and not a single prosecution under the FACE Act. In fact, if you go to the mission statement on the website, you'll see they have a statement there that says, talks about their mission to, quote, prosecute acts of violence or threats of violence, close quote, against uh, reproductive health clinics, by which they mean abortion clinics. And yeah, if you look at their explanation of the FACE Act, they do have some language that was actually added during the Trump administration to, to make it clear that this includes pro-life centers, uh, but the folks there have no interest in prosecuting or investigating these cases. Now remember, the criminal section is headed by an assistant attorney general. Her name is Kristen Clark. She is a virulent abortion supporter and in fact has, for example, uh, called the, Insur the uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a group that defends the religious freedom of people, a hate group. Um, she has uh, called pro-life pregnancy centers predatory and fake clinics. Uh, after the May leak, um, DOJ organized a re re reproductive rights task force that was obviously geared only to protecting abortion clinics. This is in the midst of all these other attacks going on, no mention made of those whatsoever. The FBI in May, after the Dobbs leak, uploaded a resource booklet to its website. It's called, uh, it, it talked about being, uh, about incidents of violence threats against abortion clinics, and it specifically talks about, quote, anti-abortion extremist actions. And it urges all abortion providers to establish liaisons with the FBI. There is no mention in that booklet whatsoever of pro-life pregnancy centers uh, and churches. They have no interest in this at all. Now, for people who think this is something new, it's not. Okay, what folks have to understand is the same kind of thing happened during the Obama administration. 
And in fact, and I've written about this, during the Obama administration, there were a number of FACE Act prosecutions that were thrown out by judges as meritless cases. And I want to just talk about two of them. One of them was a case in Florida in which a FACE Act uh, criminal prosecution was filed against a woman who for years had been going to an abortion clinic engaging in peaceful sidewalk counseling. And all of a sudden, she's arrested, prosecuted, and it's claimed that she obstructed the entrance to the clinic. Now, the best evidence of this would have been the videotape from the surveillance camera at the clinic. Somehow, that videotape disappeared. And in fact, the judge, after he threw out the as he was thrown out the case, castigated the lawyers at the Justice Department in the criminal section for their negligence and perhaps even grossly negligent behavior in not preserving crucial evidence in the case, and it led the judge to wonder whether that was deliberate because the prosecution was, quote, a product of a concerted effort between the government and the abortion clinic, which began well before the date of the incident at issue, to quell Ms. Pine's activity. A second case in Kansas also got thrown out by a judge in which DOJ objected to hearing the testimony of its own FBI agent. Why? Because the FBI agent had recommended against a prosecution saying, according to the judge, quote, there was nothing there there. And in fact, the FBI was frustrated with the suit because, according to the judge, they felt that it undermined the trust and the relationship that they were trying to develop with people who were not extremists but were still pro-life. And the case was, quote, speculation piled on top of speculation. Now, the Civil Rights Division, so you have Kristen Clark, who is an anti-pro-life um, uh, pregnancy center, who has no interest in enforcing this. You have the career lawyers in the criminal section. And who does she report to? The Assistant Attorney General of Civil Rights reports to the Associate Attorney General. That's the number three spot. And who is that? A woman named Vanita Gupta, who headed the Civil Rights Division during the Obama administration when they were engaging in this kind of abuse of the FACE Act. And in fact, um, was never confirmed as the head of the Assistant, uh, as the Assistant Attorney General, and instead ran the division in violation of the Federal Vacancies Act. Yeah, she was the acting for a long time. Right. So, um, so my point here is that um, the reason you haven't seen any prosecutions is they're not interested in uh, equal, objective enforcement. And I think that, that the lawyers, particularly in the career section, are violating their ethical and professional duties to not engage in selective enforcement. So, Ken, I'll get to you in just a second. I, I forgot, Andy, I want to come back to you for just a moment. I, I forgot to ask you, I made reference in my opening remarks about sometimes the FBI showing up en masse, fully armed to arrest people, and months after the event, what was the situation with Mark Houck? How long ago had the alleged incident happened between the time of the incident and the time of his arrest, and how was his arrest effectuated? Well, this is, this is interesting, John. Uh, local law enforcement chose not to get involved in this this minor uh, interaction. And about a year passed. Uh, the federal government convened a grand jury, sent sent Mark a target letter. So then we began representing him then. One of our guys is a highly decorated former federal prosecutor who contacted the assistant U.S. attorney who's handling this case three times. 
and making the case that this was not a violation of the FACE Act, that we had another case that we had tried in this same district where the court had found these facts did not amount to a violation of the FACE Act. Do you but, want to take a moment and talk but, about that too? Go ahead, continue, and then take a moment and talk about that case where the judge had found that there wasn't a violation. Okay. But, said, if you decide to go forward, there's no need to come arrest him and disturb his family. We will walk him in. That is not what they did. There was silence in response to that communication until the sneak attack occurred when they did an early morning raid, sending a couple dozen heavily armed FBI agents to apprehend him in front of his children with, with guns drawn. Now, we can try these cases, and we have a lot of these. And there's, when I talk about a misuse of government power, there's layers of it here, John. One is charging him with a violation of the FACE Act for what happened. Another one is putting him through that arrest. You know, at some point, even if we win, the process is the punishment, and this is an abuse of power. Now, we're defending others who are charged with violations of the FACE Act, and in the, case, the cases where they did not act alone, the government has paired the FACE Act charge, and the FACE Act was passed to stop sit-ins at abortion clinics. And the people's representatives in Congress decided what penalties were fair for that kind of violation. And they paired that with another charge, a second charge, conspiracy to violate the FACE Act under a statute that was passed to get the KKK. So they're facing penalties in the form of fines and prison time that are 10 times what Congress decided were appropriate for, for sitting and blocking the entrance to a clinic, which is something Mark Houck didn't do. So this is just a startling abuse of government power. Did Mark Houck have a, a criminal record of any kind, or, or much less one for violent, you know, violent offense? No, he didn't. And what, another thing that's interesting is that when they processed him, they released him on his own recognizance. He did not have to post any bond. They let him out for a year. He's not a danger to the public, and he's not a flight risk, so there was no reason to do this early morning raid on his home. To send a message. Send a message to pro-lifers everywhere. No legal reason. Yes. That if you no go there, reason. even if you do nothing wrong, you are at risk. And so we want to send a message that if they pull a shenanigan like this again, the Thomas More Society is going to be there for you, have your back, and vindicate your rights. Right. So you are, be not afraid, you can go to the clinics and offer help to these desperate women. So the, the way they effectuated that arrest is uh, there's no legitimate explanation for that, showing up en masse, fully armed to arrest the man in front of his family. But I'm, I'm sure in Mark Houck's case, it's like Tulane said. John, John it actually person. introduces danger. No, of course that it does. That doesn't yeah. otherwise exist. I'll oh, give you a simple local example. We're in, we're in D.C. here, across the river a few years back in Fairfax County. They went after an ophthalmologist who was running numbers. Uh, running numbers is literally like running your own lottery. And um, they showed up with the SWAT team to arrest him and accidentally shot him to death. Right. So, um, you know, okay, we don't want him running numbers, but their explanation was, well, numbers is gambling, that's organized crime, that's a high-risk arrest. So we brought the whole SWAT team. The reality is, that, um, and it isn't what's going on here, there's a different message being sent, as Han said, but in this local example, and you, we, we can see this sort of behavior repeated, they'll show up at the next year's school board meeting for the budget, and they'll say, oh, well, we serve 900 high-risk warrants. Well, that was one of them. And if that's their high-risk warrant, so there's, there's a, at the local level, there's also 
uh, a different play going on here. Yeah. So, Ken, let, let's stick with you now. So you obviously have extensive law enforcement uh, experience, also an immigration experience at both the state and, and federal levels. Uh, Juan, tell us a little bit about your work in the pro-life uh, movement and, and your perspectives, so I suspect I know what the answer is, about whether these agencies are in fact operating uh, in a neutral and nonpartisan manner or whether they're acting in a partisan manner. Well, not surprisingly, probably protecting life was one of the reasons I originally ran for office, and, and it was a centerpiece of my time in the state Senate, and certainly wasn't something um, that <laughs> passed by while I was attorney general either, um, working in concert with then-Governor McDonnell. And, um, but I've also been out on the sidewalks, praying and doing, the, doing those other things without obstructing clinics. Um, that we hope are going to change hearts and minds slowly but surely and um, and and frankly bring God into play here because this this is a spiritual battle um, at that level um, at the same time you know we're talking about it I certainly think the answer to your opening question is yes and I mean Hans is absolutely correct you know of course personnel is policy I would suggest though that unlike the Obama administration this is a part and parcel of an of an all of government weaponization of all the levers of power against those who simply disagree with this administration. And um, life is, of course, a central issue to them that they have seized on, in part because they've got nothing else. They're flushing the rest of America down the drain economically, in terms of our security. The, the vice president and the president embarrass us internationally all the time. They don't have much to turn to politically. But I would say that um, you know, when you look at stepping back, sure. when you look as the charging official about whether to proceed, um, of course, we expect prosecutors to use discretion and to not proceed sometimes where it's inappropriate to do so. But 99.9% .9 of what um, charging officials, in this case it's the U.S. Attorney General, um, are thinking about is just plain old crime. It is a very rare situation where you either have a public corruption angle or you are touching on what is clearly a political issue in the sense that expression is involved, uh, issues of public policy are involved, of course that's what as uh, we heard about earlier, that's a very small slice of potential cases. And those factors are appropriate to consider. It's, you know, you mentioned the Mar-a-Lago situation. It's very, and the lack of a similar treatment for the Clintons. Um, it is very appropriate to consider whether you start to look like a banana republic when you start invading former presidents' houses. I mean, you don't have to look too many countries to the South where that's pretty much the tradition. After you leave office, you get arrested. And um, uh, that is a very dicey consideration to have to weigh in, but it's a very important one. And they have cast that to the wind in the Department of Homeland Security where I spent some time in the Trump administration. We've seen the weaponization. Of, sp of speech policing. You know, we saw the Ministry of Truth there. Um, the, uh, the 
skewing of uh, focus of anti-terrorist assets to essentially paint their political opponents as terrorists. And here we see the prosecutorial power used against what are clearly political ideological opponents that were never contemplated, as you described, John, in the sort of the birth of the FACE Act. Um, what we're seeing here, people like Mark were never contemplated at that time as targets of this power. And um, so at a higher level, all the way up to the president and the attorney general, the personnel as policy comment by Hans comes into play as well. And um, you know, this is what we've elected. I hate to say that, but that is what happened here. Um, you know, your neighbor who votes Democrat, if you're watching, isn't in this category, odds are. But there is a Stalinist group of Democrats that have control of this administration. And that's the personnel we're seeing. They are not only comfortable with the use of tyrannical tactics, they find the lack of use of them. Look at how this is talked about on universities, where free speech is actually dumped upon. It's outrageous that you can say this unimpeded. That mentality exists there. Well, raise that up into law enforcement positions, and you get what we're talking about today. So you see then this, you, see you all have obviously said that you think that the FACE Act is being enforced in a, in a hyperpartisan manner. You see this as just being one piece of a much broader puzzle. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned immigration specifically. I mean, there obviously you have, at least more recently, the most experience. Well, true, but we also, you know, we deal with terrorism and warnings and so forth. And, um, you know, so they use an area, uh, white supremacists. And the statistics on when an occurrence happens related to white supremacy, they're, they're statistically more lethal than other types of terrorists. Now that's a small number of instances with more deaths. And we're talking total in a year between 30 and 60 total for all terrorism. Um, obviously 9-11, you go back 20 years and the number was different. And that's a big part of why DHS exists. Um, nonetheless, uh, we do have to face a world of terrorist threats, and they're turning all of those resources to white supremacy, which again is a problem, but it is one problem. The reason they're doing that is because then they paint all of us, even having this conversation here today, puts for them, they want to paint us all as white supremacists. So boom, you're a potential terrorist. Um, it's the conflation of an extraordinarily wide array of political and policy and intellectual positions that they just want to treat as terrorists and therefore use um, violent tactics against, they have no problem with violence used against people on the right. Um, I will say that abortion is one of those issues where the a willingness to use violence on the left is highest. It is not the only one, but it is certainly on the high end. Um, you know, uh, pro-tax protesters on the left aren't as violent right. as pro-abortion folks on the left. And uh, just to give a sense of scale, and we could go through a whole another series of these things. And I think there are plenty of reasons why that's true. 
but they're not our focus today. The focus is really that that inspiration is leading those in power to use the levers of power against folks like Mark, who you pictured up there. And I, I, I agree with Andy, the process is, is the punishment. And they're going to lose these cases because they have good counsel. Now, bullies like to pick on people who can't fight back, which is why entities like Thomas More are so important is it makes it harder for the bully to single people out. Um, and um, so that, that's, that really is a critical part of our system. Um, we will get down the line here, sort of French Revolution-esque, where they will try to impede, impair, and illegalize groups like the Thomas More Society. That's part of the plan on the left. Let's not kid ourselves. And um, you saw, again, in one of your examples in your opening, John, the uh, the terrorism, uh, uh, the assignment of the label of domestic terrorist to parents showing up at school board meetings to deal with uh, transgender issues, CRT, other things that are part and parcel of the atomization of the family that is part of the strategy of the radical left that, again, I think ordinary Democrats in our neighborhoods, people we know, would never support. But that isn't who has control of these levers of power. So you made reference before to you know, violence committed by, uh, by pro-abortion protesters. And obviously, the overwhelming majority of people who are in favor of abortion rights are not Correct. violent people. Uh, but you know, the prominent example, and this guy has been charged, this guy, I think his name is Nicholas Roski, for attempting to kill Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And right. we had just to hear a couple of nights ago, Justice Samuel Alito was here, and he was asked by me about the effects on the court of the leak. And he said, look, it was not only terrible in terms of how the internal operations of the court work, but all of a sudden, the five justices who, based on this Politico article that accompanied that leak, were believed to, and ultimately did sign on to that majority opinion, became targets of assassination. And people, when, after he said that, people were going, oh, oh, really? The answer is yes, because an until an opinion is issued, right. it is not official, because somebody can change their vote up until the very last minute. So literally, somebody could, not rationally in the sense of you know, being of sound mind, but could make the rational determination, oh, if I kill one of these five they justices, yeah, they don't have the vote. President Biden gets to replace that justice, and the result changes. Uh, a, a horrifically dangerous. This is the John Grisham, what is it, the Penguin, penguin Brief? Right? Yeah, it's yeah. Pelican, Pelican Brief. Pelican, Pelican, Pelican Brief, thank you. I knew it was I, some bird, but. Can I add something to this? <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Look, this is part and parcel of the abuse of the FACE Act. Because as you, as you mentioned, look, there's a, there's a federal statute that should have been used to prosecute the individuals who were protesting outside yes. of the justices. And, and you know, I, I've heard people say to me, well, I have a First Amendment right to do that. No. What the statute says, and this is very important, is that um, you can't engage in this kind of activity, not just outside the homes of judges, but also outside the homes of pro federal prosecutors right. and witnesses. And the point is to prevent activity that is intended, and which this clearly was, to intimidate Witnesses in trials, prosecutors in trials, and judges who are making decisions. 
because without a statute like that, without enforcement of it, you know, next time a mobster is uh, being prosecuted by the U.S. attorney, what prevents his henchmen from going and protesting out the side of the homes of witnesses? Because the, the, the example's now been given. The Justice Department isn't going to do anything about this. And again, going back to what happened with Mr. Houck, okay? Look, any federal prosecutor or former federal prosecutor like you, John, I should mention you were a former assistant former federal US prosecutor, attorney. yes. Look, if you have a target of an investigation who's been indicted, and yeah, he's a gangster, he's got a record of violence, well then, yeah, you're going to want the FBI to show up uh, with enough uh, force to make sure that no one is hurt. But when you have someone with no criminal record, who's represented by a lawyer, who's already called and spoken to you and said, look, let us know if this happens and we'll show up at the courthouse so he can be arraigned. Uh, you do not show up with two dozen FBI agents with guns drawn unless you are doing it for one purpose only, and that is to send a message across the country. And it's not just, you know, we've been talking about the, the DOJ abusing this. But you mentioned, John, at the beginning, uh, the abuses by the FBI and the malfeasance um, uh, and malpractice, basically, of FBI agents and all these other incidents. Uh, we should not leave out here the whoever the special agent is in charge of the FBI field office in Philadelphia who had an ethical obligation when called by the Justice Department and told, uh, well, we want 25 of your agents showing up with guns drawn to go get that, should have said no. That that is an overuse of force. It's dangerous. That shouldn't happen. And yet, what did the agent in charge of that office do? Went right along with it. And that shows another defect, not just in the Justice Department, but also in the FBI. So let me ask a couple of other questions, and then time permitting, we'll get to audience questions. And actually, although Ken Hans, you should feel free to jump in, I'll direct the first question to Andy and to, to Julaine. Uh, so the FACE Act actually has a provision uh, the protecting expressive conduct and peaceful, picket, peaceful picketing or other peaceful demonstrations. And it states explicitly that the law cannot be used uh, to interfere with activities that are protected by, by the First Amendment. Clearly, you think that that provision was not robust enough to prevent what happened to, to Mark Houck. And so do you think this, this provision needs to be strengthened in some way? And, and if so, do you have any suggestions about ways to do that? Well, I think uh, at the at the bottom, John, this is a state and local problem, that, and this should be returned to the states. Uh, if you commit murder, you'll probably be charged by a state because it's not a violation of federal law unless it occurs on federal property or fits into some narrow exception. Uh, the, what are known as the police powers are generally reserved to the states, and this should be returned to the states. Uh, that exception is there, that protection for peaceful First Amendment protected activities is there, and it's been disregarded in many of these cases by uh, government officials who are abusing government power. So we take away the FACE Act, we take away their ability to do that. We also need to decouple the FACE Act from, which was intended to stop sit-ins that blockade clinic entrances from this federal conspiracy statute that was intended to take down the KKK that was rampaging across the country doing lynchings. These need to be decoupled. That language, if the FACE Act is going to be retained, needs to be strengthened, and, and this abuse of government power has to be restrained. 
Do you have anything to add to that, Jolene? Well, you know, I, I actually one of our former employees was arrested and went to jail for just exactly the behavior you're talking about, peaceful protests at, at one of the abortion facilities in Milwaukee. This was years ago. We haven't had a lot of that happening there, but I get just a broader comment. Sure. So, you know, the, the famous statement by Barack Obama in January of 2009 uh, to um, Eric Cantor, elections have consequences and oh, by the way, I won, right? What we're experiencing here really is the, the truth of that statement. It's at every level of government. We're seeing it in Wisconsin. And I said to the law enforcement when they were there on the day that we were attacked, if you will act quickly, you will mitigate the likelihood of this being replicated across the country. And you know, they left with smug looks on their faces, quite frankly, assuring me that of course this would be aggressively pursued. But the more we ignore this and the more there is in clear impunity for the actors, whether it's the FBI with these overreaches of, of their power and abuse of their power, or whether it's the criminals who are attacking groups like ours in pregnancy care centers, it, it, it's a clear reflection of, of government currently, the actors we have in place, saying we are going to ignore it because we want to send that message. Uh, just real quickly, groups like ours are being told, we won't give you um, database opportunity. We won't even bank with you. We won't, yeah. we won't insure you. We won't, yeah. I mean, it's the whole, whole set of other problems. Set of other yeah. things. I mean, Heritage has got to be involved with that, I'm sure at some level, because we're told that on a regular basis. And so the, the, the longer we allow this kind of thing to go, and that, that's to me one of the most important things about this panel today, is what is the answer right. and how is it effectuated? How do we do that? And so, you know, if we need to get rid of the FACE Act and, you know, uncouple it from the KKK situation and, um, and bring in, please bring in better people to enforce the law so that, because I totally concur, personnel is policy. A lot of people don't understand that, but that's reality. If I was pro-abortion, I would, I would not be comfortable with prosecutions under the FACE Act. The, there's a neat dichotomy here, and, and, and because prosecutions under the FACE Act draw attention to the FACE Act. And I, I would be uncomfortable with that if I was pro-abortion because of this dichotomy here. You, you protect churches and you protect abortion clinics, not health clubs, not bowling alleys, churches and abortion clinics. So each side gets <laughs> protection for the sanctuary in which their sacrament resides. That's bad optics if I'm pro-abortion. So just to put a, a fine point, Andy, in what you said, I, I, I haven't looked at the FACE Act in a while, but I'm assuming that the justification for the FACE Act was that it was somehow connected to interstate commerce. commerce yeah. and, and one would be hard-pressed, unless you're a very creative lawyer, and there are a lot of them out there, to find a true substantial interstate nexus between what happens in an abortion clinic uh, to justify federal authority. And all of the acts that you've been talking about, trespass, assault, destruction of property, are there are criminal uh, statutes in every state and jurisdiction that cover those acts. So if one did eliminate the FACE Act, it would certainly not be the situation that people who really engage in criminal conduct of any kind could not face. Yeah, John, let's be really clear. As you just noted, everything that might be covered of legitimate illegality under the FACE Act is already illegal in all 50 states. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, under state law. Under state law. That's right. This was, um, this act was passed to uh, undertake federal elected officials' favorite thing, look Busy. 
look busy. Look at me, I'm doing stuff. And to bring the kind of intimidation power because it's always asymmetrical. Right. Always. Um, this, uh, I have an, a saying, if the power exists, it will be used. Well, here it is. It may have been 28 years later. Um, and of course, as Hans noted in the Obama administration, but it's being abused. And by used, I mean abused. Um, we are not more safe because the FACE Act exists. And I would also note, you know, use the Supreme Court justices, the interplay state to federal, um, where all of those justices live, and I'm pretty sure of this, they're all Soros prosecutors. So they will not get local protection except in very extreme circumstances. Or put differently, the local prosecutors will avoid as best they possibly can protecting these justices under these circumstances. You literally had, uh, it was not just the, the lives of the justices that were threatened, you literally had, for instance, pro-abortion pro -abortion advocates posting where Justice Amy Coney Barrett sends her children to school. Yes. Um, very dangerous situation. So, so Ken Hans, let me go to you, but again, Andy, Julian, if you feel you, you want to have something you want to add, jump right in. So we've all been describing uh, a situation in, in which sensitive investigations are being conducted in areas that involve a lot of, where there's a lot of political disagreement and ferment. Um, and what are some of the steps, other than repealing the FACE Act, that you think can be can and should be taken to you know highlight these problems, improve improve transparency, uh, and hold our leaders accountable for the decisions well, that they made. I got a couple of suggestions on the statute. Um, first of all, uh, but I have to say, you know, I wonder whether, uh, and again, uh, John, I think you have experience with this. Um, local local law enforcement, local prosecutors tend to stand stand back when the when they know something is a federal crime. That's true. And I wonder whether. For example, all these attacks on churches and pro-life pregnancy centers, whether local law enforcement is just not doing anything about it because they expect the FBI and the Justice Department to do it, so nothing's getting done, okay? But if you're going to amend the statute, um, one of the problems you saw was, you know, I talked about these meritless cases that the Obama administration filed that the judges threw out. Well, perhaps the statute should be amended for some kind of um, awarding of sanctions and attorney's fees mm -hmm. when these um, prosecutions are unsuccessful and are thrown out by a judge. That certainly should be the case. There's a, a civil component, Andy mentioned that. Um, if you are civilly sued and a judge or a jury decides it was a meritless, frivolous suit, it should never been filed, you should be able to collect your attorney's fees and costs back against whoever civilly sued you for, for that. And I, I think the, the, the final thing I'll just mention very quickly is um, I think it might help if you moved enforcement of this law out of the Civil Rights Division, moved it over to the criminal division, and then de devolved it down to the U.S. Attorney's offices. Why? The leadership in Washington doesn't care what the local community thinks in Wichita, Kansas, or some town in, in uh, Pennsylvania. But the U.S. attorneys, even the politically appointed ones, they come from <laughs> the local community. They're going to have to return to the local community. The FBI agents there uh, are from the local community. They're going to have to return to the local community. And 
like the FBI agent in the Kansas case I was talking about who said, there's no there there, you shouldn't be filing this case. If they have control over it, then we might be get, be get better, fairer enforcement of this law. Ken, any thoughts about that? Yeah, well, uh, you know, there's an old budget rule, I think it's called the Holman Rule. It's the defunding of specifically identified federal bureaucrats. And it has not been used, and I don't know Which how Congress long. can do. Congress can do. And um, to take Han's excellent example of the special agent in charge, SAC, um, in Philadelphia, who led this two dozen agents um, on this little rampage into Mr. Houck's house that should have stood in the way. Now, he may still be ordered to proceed, but um, if it looks like he just rolled along in that way, Congress should defund him personally. And the reason is we're talking about, in, in, to a great deal, an impression. And all the other SACs need to know, uh, to put it in military terms, the officer is the moral foundation of a unit. And when you get bad orders, the officer is the only one who's supposed to consider questioning them, not the enlisted folks. It's their job to act as a final filter. That's one of their roles, to, to Hans's point about his oath, or her oath, I don't know. And um, you know, Congress can play a role in this, and they can do it very quickly, um, and at least create a kind of constructive discussion within the law enforcement bureaucracy that clearly, to my mind, does not appear to exist right now. Um, it is a very unhealthy, just following orders mentality um, instead of seeking to do the right thing all the time. I'm assuming that you both agree that, that uh, oversight hearings would be appropriate for this kind of absolutely. thing. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I would fully yeah. expect them to have Very in-depth oversight yeah. hearings. So we have about five minutes left. So I think we have time for a couple of questions. Here we go. Maya? Okay, let's wait till we get a, a microphone here. because the Navajo and Orthodox Jews and Muslims um, work in partnerships. So isn't the DOJ failing to, you know, perpetuating a invidious um, discriminatory characterization of pro-lifers um, when the FACE Act itself protects places of worship, not just churches? That, the, those DOJ folks, particularly the Civil Rights Division, are constantly stereotyping the American people. I mean, they're, they're like some of the worst people I've ever seen at doing that. So that, that's exactly what's going on. And what you described fits in with what I described earlier using the domestic terrorism example. We do have domestic terrorism problems, but the, the political leadership here in Washington wants to treat all political opponents and, right. and draw their, the, the white supremacist Christian and sweep everybody into that um, and thus deter people from even participating in their faith and, and so forth, um, because they view it as a bad thing. God is the enemy of what they're doing, yeah. and uh, among others, and they know that. Yeah, and look, we've mentioned this, but people need to understand how outrageous it was uh, what the Justice Department did when they were saying that they were forming, they actually formed a task force. Yeah. A task force to look at uh, uh, parents and, and see if they were acting as terrorism. And they brought into the task force, not just the FBI, but the National Security Division of the Justice Department. National Security Division is the division that goes after 
foreign espionage agents and foreign terrorists. It was just completely, totally outrageous. Could I just mention, yeah, this course, is all right. about intimidation. I just want to give you a specific example about that. So we ran a camp in the summer, a, a worldview and leadership camp for teenagers 13 to 19. We had it in July. After this attack, what do you suppose the number one question was that I got from parents? What are you going to do to protect my children? This is about raw intimidation. Yeah. It's, a, it's not, abortion is the current issue. Look, I could have been attacked in our office on marriage, family, life, or religious freedom. They could come at, at our at us any day for any of those reasons, and they do. But it's wide sweeping. It, it's not just silence, trying to silence me and my organizations. It's trying to intimidate parents. Don't send your kids to these camps. We want you to live in fear. And until and unless we, we rein this thing in and bring true justice, not social justice, true justice into play, we're gonna to continue to have these kinds of things happen because nobody is paying attention to it in the key positions. Let's take one more question and time for quick answers. Did I see a hand up over here? Yeah. Uh, just real quickly, has the FACE Act ever been used to protect a church or a pregnancy center? So, check the website of the criminal section. They list all their cases. I don't think you'll find a single case on there protecting a church or a pro-life pregnancy center. Well, this has certainly been a robust discussion on a very important issue. I'm glad we've had an opportunity to highlight it. It deserves more attention than it has so far received. Please take a moment in thanking our panelists.